0: Father, thank you so much that through that story of Ellen White, of how she had gone through so much, and yet you had educated her, you had empowered her, and you're the one who, who guided her to be able to write those thousands of pages. And here we are still reading them today and how they point us to Jesus. So Lord, help us to see you value us that much as well. Help us to see that from the beginning of the world, even before that, you uttered our names, each one of us, and you've called us for work such a time as this. Send the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us to the words of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So, This new series is called The Crown, not just The Crown, but The Crown of Jesus. And so this week we'll be talking about how he has a habit of coming near, he has a habit of humility, and the next week in our communion service we'll talk more about that. But as I have come across different people who don't believe in the Bible, even ones who who are avowed atheists, There are some that are re-looking at the subject of complexity. In fact, I was at Turtle Bay yesterday and and somebody was talking about all the complexity of these animals and how did this all come about, but they were shaped by nature. They they give credit to nature, right? But deep down, I told my kids, you know the real answer, right? And it's God. And yet, here we see all this complexity, we see all this mathematical, all these mathematical formulas. There's even a video clip, you can look it up on YouTube, How. Everything is mathematical. Life is mathematical. You look at the fact you're sitting on a pew, it's mathematical. There's physics everywhere. And the physics teachers are actually discovering more and more as they look back at material, the complexity is even greater than we ever imagined. And so mathematics and statistics point to a complexity that's out of this world. In fact, one mathematician who was looking at the pictures of our Hubble uh, telescope, he began to, to re-look at some of them because he originally thought they were galaxies, and but he said it's got to be wrong because they're moving faster than the speed of light. Nothing moves faster than the speed of light. And so he began to think maybe, maybe it's extraterrestrials or some kind of ship coming towards us, but anyway, he went off onto this really strange uh, religion, if you will, but nonetheless, he realized that maybe our mathematical equations are not infinite. They cannot grasp everything. The universe is beyond our mathematics at times. Now, I will say mathematics works, uh, you say, in this earth a lot. I mean, you look at all the different equations we come up with to figure things out just on a day-to-day basis to function. But I believe there are some math equations, there are some bits of science that do not make sense. In fact, in astronomy class, my bachelor's level astronomy class, they call all of this dark matter this stuff that they couldn't figure out that was out there, and they they some said 80%, some said 90% of our universe is like dark matter. We don't know much about it. Are there some equations then in the spiritual realm that we cannot fully understand, that we recognize our finiteness, that we are just barely scratching the surface of? I believe there's many of them. One of them is the fact that God, the God of the universe, the one who made those galaxies that seemed to be moving it faster than the speed of light, could actually be one with us, one with not just us, but me and you, every one of us, simultaneously, how we could see everything happening in the world, and, and see it almost in slow motion, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day, you get the idea that a, a thousand years is nothing, but imagine each day being like a thousand years to him. Him seeing everything. If you saw everything he saw, you, of course, would have, and I would have a mental breakdown because of all the evil and everything that's going on. Even all the good mixing in there, we would not be able to handle it. Imagine that type of God becoming one in us, each one of us. And so that's one of the truths I'm going to look at here with you this morning, how God not only comes to us, he comes to be in us, to be one with us. Some of you might say, Pastor, we've heard this oneness concept so much over the last couple of years. You're going to keep hearing it because it's everywhere. And if you think it's just my voice, go read some writings of Ellen White. You're going to find oneness is just sprinkled all throughout there, how this oneness, especially in John 17, is important in these last days. And so God comes to us in creation. We know he comes to us because John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Who is this? This is Jesus, right? This is God with us. The one who was the word, the one who made all things, including us, and nothing was made without him that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The fact that we are still breathing, the fact that we still have light, the fact that we have all these beautiful things around us in nature, even mathematics cannot explain the complexity of them, is evidence that that Jesus exists. I know some like to have historical evidence. You can go to, you can go to some individuals for that, like, for instance, uh, Josephus and others. But as far as this evidence, it's all around us. We just have to look for it. And so what are the all, all the things that he created? Well, we know it's our world. We know it's the sun, the moon, the stars. We know Genesis makes it very clear. It's a very all-inclusive creator that we have. Everything that we see in the night sky, everything that we experience here down in this world, everything has been made by him. And so we find, yes, things in the ocean. I know I enjoy watching videos of these creatures in the ocean. Uh, We even looked at a a dolphin's skeleton yesterday, the skeleton of the head of the dolphin. You can look at that thing, and it's amazing to look at just the, the complexity in that organism. And you look at all the rest of them that we had there at Turtle Bay. It was was amazing to see all of that. Not only in the ocean, but we find on the land, even though we have disasters and things that kind of make it look imperfect. Now, it still represents God himself. It still is echoing a creator. What about us, ourselves? Just looking in the mirror is evidence of a creator. I mean, you look at the complexity of DNA. You look at the fact that, isn't this an amazing thought that somebody could take and we could do it ourselves. I could go over to the beach or or some muddy bank of a river and begin to form something, but to breathe into it to the point where it could be living, breathing as complex as we are. Some of you have been in nursing, doctors, all of that. You know anatomy and physiology a lot better than I ever will know it until Jesus gives me a lot more knowledge or, or more capacity for it and the earth made new. It is so complex. Just the human organism, And yet, here we are, years later, still living, still breathing, still reflecting the original handiwork of the creator. It's an amazing thought. And yet, that is evidence not just of a creator, but of a creator, the Lord who comes down to his people to shape them. I believe he's still shaping us today. Physically, at times, you'll find there's there's some who believe that uh, we're a certain way. I know sin has gotten in there, and therefore we need Jesus to, to kind of help us, but spiritually, he's still shaping us to this day. We know in the Garden of Eden, he, the Lord comes down in the cool of the day, we're told in Genesis chapter three. So imagine coming forth from the creator's hand, waking up into the beautiful presence of the Lord, and there he is. He's still spending time with you every day, even up to the fall of mankind. He's still walking with them in the cool of the day. He's still coming to approach them. And so imagine having that relationship with the Lord, how he is right there with you, not just one who formed you externally, but one who is intimately involved with you in relationship, that oneness in creation. We go on down over to even the fall of mankind, where here he is promising to crush the head of the serpent, and here he is, the Lord himself, stationing the flaming sword and the cherubim at the garden gate, watching the fallen parents leave. And imagine them, seeing the things of creation that the God of the universe had made, Jesus himself had made, begin to decay and fall. Just as they had fallen. They experienced their first fall. They experienced, yes, the idea of of clothing from animals. And yet the Lord promised them personally, I will come, I will send someone who will crush the head of the serpent and will be wounded at the same time there will come the serpent crusher, and that's none other than Jesus who made the promise. Imagine going on down to the flood time, and here we are, and, and I remember we were up the mist trail up at Yosemite. If you've ever been there, it's just, my wife went a little further than I did and saw a lot more rainbows, but even this very week as we were in our house and this unseasonable rain came, we looked out and there's a rainbow right in our front yard, and I saw my wife, a pot of gold right over there, right? <laughs> it was actually near the church boat, which, you know, you know it's, it's an old boat, but... Um, The rainbow still testifies this day of a God who not only just arbitrarily judged the world, he didn't do that, he actually sent a preacher and and others for years leading up to that flood telling them, do not go that way. Come, please, come into my mercy. And we still have a token of that through the rainbow. You go to Sodom and Gomorrah where you find evidence of all kinds of terrible immoral behaviors. And what does God do? He comes down to Abraham and eventually, you see Abraham him getting into this, this bargain for souls, if you will. He, Abraham should have known the mercy of God and gotten down to one soul. He, wouldn't have even, he would not have destroyed the city. But he gets down to that number, and we know the rest of the story. But God comes down to his people. And even though he has to hold evil in check, he is personally right there trying to woo, trying to tell someone to turn from that evil as well. We get on down to the story of Moses And Moses, you know, goes up to God, and God comes down in that glory, and Moses is told there's a prophet who's going to come. He writes about that. In fact, John the Baptist is asked in the Gospels, are you the prophet? Now you could say, well, is the prophet the one in Malachi, or is it the one that Moses is referring to? But the book of Matthew is clear, that Jesus is the prophet who is to come that Moses was talking about. He's the greater Moses and what would he do? He would save his people from his sin. He would do even more than Moses could ever do for the nation, he would save them from their sins. Not just the bondage of of a nation of Egypt, he would save them from the bondage of the the daily grind of sin itself. Matthew chapter one, we're told name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so we get down to Moses who has that friendship with God, that, that oneness relationship with God the Father and Jesus, and we continue down through the Old Testament, and the whole Old Testament, you find God coming down to his people. When we, when we get up here and we, and we sing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and then we do an invocation. An invocation is an invitation for God to come down. We're just saying, God, guide us to see you today. It may be prayed in different ways but it's the same thing. We're asking for what we see in the Bible. God, come down here today. We know you are in our lives. We know you're in our hearts, but we want to have a special connection with you, especially on the Sabbath day. Malachi's last prophecy talks about a falling away from the law of God in the last days. And it says that somebody is going to come to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to their fathers. This Elijah figure. And who was that? We know John the Baptist, partial fulfillment of it. But ultimately, the one who restored the law, the one who was pointing to the Father in in a way that that was very clear, is none other than Jesus. And so God comes down over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And then he eventually, because you imagine all those stories of the Old Testament. Is he still sovereign? Is Is the Lord still ruling? You find the psalmist talks about that. But imagine the one who rules the universe, who made everything, taking off all of that divinity. Taking off all of that, if you will, imagine a king taking off his splendid robes and his crown and coming down and actually being one of us. That's what happens in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us it was it's even worse than just taking off your splendid robes and your crown it's a total demeaning experience for the god of the universe to become one with us and yet he does it out of love we find that in that story very familiar to us especially around december but it's a story i want to focus on here today what does this act of becoming one with us mean cosmically What it means is our answer for our young people. And Mitchell's heading out, but he better get the answer. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. talks about suffering for Christ and having this endurance to do that. And then he goes on and tells his audience in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, if there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, we know there's plenty of that, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any deep down the bowels and mercies, this, this, this heart-rending experience, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love Being of one accord, of one mind. doesn't mean uniformity. It does mean, though, there are times when we have to say, you know what, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe maybe this is where we're at. And so as we look here, it keeps going on. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That takes conversation, that takes dialogue, that takes a willingness to know the other person. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7, But made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is this act of becoming human really as we look into it more in depth? That's a whole chapter you can read there on your own this afternoon. But Philippians chapter 2, Mitchell, you got that answer written down? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that when he becomes human, he lays down the full splendor of divinity to be clothed in humanity. And that's what he offers to do for each one of us in our lives. He is forever humble. He is forever willing to serve us and to guide us. I mean, just think about our lives. Look back just the last 10, 15 years of your life and say, you know what? God, you have been so good to me to reveal this to me and that to me and and why would you take the time out of everything that's happening in the universe to do all of that? Because he loves us. That's why. Because he values us more than divinity itself. And he also knows the path that we go down if we don't follow him is one of death and destruction and it just look around us in society. When the devil has a heyday, this is, this is what it looks like in America. Immorality rampant, all of these different things happening, and, and we cannot go along with the culture of the day. You cannot do that. You have to think of a heavenly culture, a heavenly atmosphere, because that's the one who came down to die for each one of us. He comes into humanity, and he changes humanity. He does not leave it to itself. And so Philippians 2 full of all of those ideas, this consolation for Paul is that we would be one in Christ, that we would have this one mind. It doesn't mean we all think the same. It means that we have the same purpose. You may wonder why this idea of a business meeting for solidarity is being brought up at this time. It wasn't just all brought about by me. I I understand that. But I feel convicted that we may not all think the same as a world church, but when, a, for instance, a board or a business meeting votes something that even I don't agree with, unless it's if I can find some huge moral reason where it gets rid of Jesus, then I will say, all right, that's where the church is at right now. I'm, I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I'm going to support it. With this issue, it's a little deeper than that. And so I don't expect, even when we have business meetings and things, I expect us to dialogue and to talk to hear sides of, of both things, to do what basically did not take place at the constituency session, which was an open dialogue about this issue. And so we, we will have that culture here where we don't always agree on everything as far as some things that are hot issues, but we will agree this is a thus saith the Lord, we're standing on this point right now and we're moving forward together. So one mind, this homothumadon does not mean everything the same. It means you have the same purpose, the same goal. You want to see Jesus come. You want to see his, his truth upheld and you're going there. There may be other things that try to get you off of that, but that's what Paul wants. He wants them to be of one mind and so therefore, we would esteem others better than ourselves. If we're esteeming others better than ourselves, we will listen to each other. This is being recorded so I guess I risk something by saying this. When you bypass a local constituency, to go to a union constituency or you put the decision to an executive committee without getting open discussion you have not heard the voice of the people and that's the biggest thing and i will tell you before all of this i didn't even consider this issue very much i just kind of went along with the crowd and i didn't even question any side of it i just kind of said all right whatever but as i'm looking at the process i'm saying the process has to be christ-like we have to, if, if no one's gonna stand for a process that's Christ-like, then I'm going to, and it's gonna be, let's hear each other out. Let's say, this is the way all the world ch- churches besides North America are going. I, whether I agree with it or not, I'm still gonna support the world church. I haven't laid my cards down to show you where I lay, but nonetheless, I wanna esteem my church better than myself. If I will listen to my family and my wife in making a decision, I expect the same thing to happen in the church. The constituency session, the union, and onward, that we would listen to each other. And so we would look on not only my own things, but every man on the things of others, even if it's a risk. And therefore, that's what happens when the mind of Christ gets in us. Then we realize what Jesus does for us. He could have easily said, nah, that's not my problem. I'm not going to deal with that. But he takes off divinity Clothes himself in humanity, and it says this: being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That always puzzled me. Not robbery to be equal with God. Well, as I looked at that, it's an interesting word. uh, Excuse me. Harpagmon, which is the word we get robbery from, means a highly prized possession. We understand Paul to say that Christ being before his incarnation in the form of God, that's what John is saying, did not regard his divine equality as a prize which was to be grasped at and retained at all hazards. But on the contrary, laid aside the form of God, took upon himself the nature of man. He did not regard his divine equality as a prize to be grasped and retained at all hazards. It's like you've got this beautiful crown, you've got this beautiful kingdom, and you're saying to yourself, it's nothing unless I have those children. It's worthless. If you've ever had children and you recognize maybe they're going astray or you recognize uh, something could possibly harm them, you know the hazards you will go through to protect them. At least I know what my mother bear wife would do. So, and, and I'm right behind her. So, The emphasis on this passage, as he says, is on Christ's humiliation. The fact of his equality with God is stated as background. It's saying, look at all this. He was equal with God, and yet he laid it down in order to throw the circumstances of incarnation into stronger relief. Look what he did for us. Hence, the peculiar form of Paul's statement Christ's great object was to identify himself with humanity, not to appear to men as divine, but as human. He could appear into the world, come into the world and he could emphasize his equality with God, and that would have amazed many people. Even some would have been saying, yeah, this is the Messiah we're looking for, right? But it would not have saved anybody. He could have come in and jumped off that temple and fulfilled what their expectations were. It could have amazed some people, but it would not have saved. That's why he didn't do it. He could have said to the devil, yeah, I guess I'll bow down. I don't have to go to the cross, I'll just bow down now, and you'll give me all the kingdoms of the earth, but it would not have saved anyone. It would have disqualified him because he would have been worshiping Someone besides his father. He did not grasp at this. Rather, he counted humanity his prize. We are his prize. Our church is his prize. Our world church is his prize. And the ones who don't know Jesus are the ones he wants to have joy over. That's his prize so if you want to find that on the internet, you can go to esword, e-sword.net, look up the word robbery on that text, you'll find exactly what I just put on the screen. If you look at this text from Ellen White, she says, Jesus Christ counted not a thing to be grasped to be equal with God, because divinity alone could be efficacious in the restoration of man from the poisonous bruise of the serpent. So this is what would happen. If he could have sent an angel to do it, he would have done it. If he could have sent you to somehow atone for your own sins and be forgiven, it could have happened, right? It, it, we won't find any record it could have happened, but if that's what could have happened to save you, it would have done, been done. But it took God himself to save us, not just one of us, but all of us. The mercy and grace and love of the universe laying itself down was enough to save infinitely number of people. That's what was supposed to happen when he was going to bruise the head of the serpent. He assumed human nature, and in the weakness of human nature sustained the character of God. Didn't tear down the character of God. He sustained it. He vindicated his holy law in every particular, and accepted the sentence of wrath and death for the sons of men. So who is he? Well, he's the one who is in the form of God, but yet laid it down for us so that the Father could be glorified. It's not glorifying God like he needs to sit in the mirror and say, oh, I need to have someone look at my splendor, my glory. It's God saying, I feel so wonderful when I see my children coming home. It's like, it's like parents sitting on the back porch holding hands, and you look out there, and you see your little ones playing in the backyard, and in that moment of peace, it's just like, yeah, there's hardships. Yeah, there's discipline. Yeah, there's things that have to go on in the home all the time but this overwhelming sense of joy hits you and you say, it's worth it. Lord, just keep them in your hand. Keep them all the way until the new earth. That joy, it's not like the father's sitting there wanting glory all the time. It's it's, it's the father glories in the fact that we love him and that he loves us in return. It's a glorious relationship to have that. And he wants everyone to confess Jesus because in confessing Jesus, we're saying, Father, we love you. And so he laid down his crown for us, Philippians says. That's what happened when he took on humanity. That was the first question. Why did he, what happened when he became human? He laid down his crown for us, but why did he do that? Luke tells us why. It's a very simple answer. He laid down his crown, his divinity, all of that, because we are of more value to him than that. We are of eternal value. Hence the title of the sermon, Eternal Value. So all you got to do when you go home, if you want to remember the sermon, it's pretty simple. Look in the mirror, read the sermon title, Eternal Value. You got it right there. Because Luke says, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? You can do the math on that on your own. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of those sparrows is forgotten by God. Not one of those sparrows that goes out there and eats my fruit off my fruit tree. Think, well, I got plenty of fruit, Lord. I've been picking it all off as it gets ripe. And every once in a while, they get one. All right. I got a little extra. Thank you for the extra so that the birds can have some. So he looks after all the little sparrows and all of that and then he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's an expression that you find in the Hebrew way of thinking. That means God knows every intimate detail about you. He will be with you through every hardship. He will be with you through everything. You won't lose your life if you follow him. And so he says, fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. That's the eternal value idea. Also I say to you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. He's, he's saying, you're of eternal value, and as a result of seeing that, you will naturally then say, this is my Lord, this is my God. I do love him dearly, because he first loved me. You're more value than many sparrows. It's even deeper than that. Not only was he willing to become human, he could have become a king or some other you know, monarch of a you know, this continent or become Roman emperor. He could, Couldn't he have, you know, arranged that? Sure he could have, but he didn't. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, what? Has nowhere to lay his head. He not only just became one of us, but he even took, down, took it down to the point of poverty, if you will. I don't know if in every aspect of my life yet, I am quite there. I think there's still room for growth. I think it begins with the idea of letting go of, you know, of material things and all of that, but, but he didn't just do that. He was going to let go of his very life to become one of us. And not just any one of us, but the lowliest of us. Next week we'll look about how he lays down his crown in humility for us. And so it's pretty clear, isn't it? he became lower than even the birds and the foxes. So that means he values us. He puts us first. He would rather sleep on the ground for the rest of eternity and and basically be totally away from God God the Father because that's what the cross shows. My God, my God, why are you forsaken? He'd rather be forsaken forever than have any one of us be lost. This is the value that he places on us. He goes on, but he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. To attribute the work of Jesus and the words of Jesus to to somehow the devil or or somehow you can't trust them or or somehow tear down the word of God is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe the Holy Spirit will go against the word of God. We may think our thoughts are the Holy Spirit. We may think that that our, our ways of doing things are the Holy Spirit, but as we look at it carefully, if we're truly being led by the Spirit of God, like it says in 2 Peter, it mentions holy, holy, these holy prophets and stuff of old, spake, and were led along as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, if, if we had that same Holy Ghost leading us, we will accept those words. Otherwise, we end up blaspheming against even the Holy Spirit. And so... We must look at the teachings of Christ. We must see how humble he is. We must say, you know what? I want to be more like him. I want to be not only recognizing my value, but the value of everyone around me. Each one is valued. So there he was at his birth, not just becoming one of us, but laying down divinity and basically the rulership of the universe if need be, his very life. He was willing to lay that down for us. And then we get to the, the, the cross, and its is it just coincidence that he has a crown of thorns placed upon his head? He's showing us at what lengths he is willing to go to. He lays down his crown, and they put on his head a crown of thorns. That's what humanity gives him in exchange for his humble life. And so that shows us what he's willing to go through to help us remember we are of eternal value. He will take off his crown and put on... Whatever humanity heaps upon him at the cross to save humanity if they will recognize it. I remember the idea of being valued and trusted, and I've talked about my grandfather I don't know how many times. Grief hits you every once in a while when you think about someone you love. But I think about a story I've told before, and I'm going to tell it again. That driveway out there is made out of gravel. Imagine being inside that house, You've just tried to get away from an abusive father. Your mom basically was threatened. Uh, he's been carrying a knife and threatened to kill himself too. And he's been out drinking. And so basically you as sons gather around your mother and you say, Mom, you need to leave this guy. We're not Christians, but we, we recognize that it's at a point where if you value your life, value us, you would just better leave. I kind of look back and think, well, maybe I re- should regret that. I don't think I regret it. I think it was what n- was needed at the time. And so we go to the only place of safety and the only place where we have felt valued the only place we really trust, my grandfather's house. We get on the other side of that door there. He is braver than brave as far as I'm concerned in my memory. As a, even as a teenager who was a football player and thought I could handle anybody and one who took my dad down one punch. I mean, I, I, I still felt at that point that this was beyond me that this was i needed some help beyond myself i didn't want to call it to god at the time but my grandfather stood in that gap as really a representative of god letting me know that you could be i could trust him letting me know that he valued us more than even himself and so when the gravel began to crunch out here in this driveway right there and i knew the familiar sound of this this pickup this ranch pickup my dad drove you could hear the engine you know diesels and stuff make noise and there he is. And this door, not even a regular standard metal front door like we have now, like a hollow core door. I mean, you're looking at a, a door with just the facade on it. Is their front door? Now, of course, back then when they were growing up, you didn't even lock your doors. But here's this door, and I still remember him going over there and locking it at first, talking to us about what happened, and then saying, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And here comes the gravel crunching. Here comes, you can hear the footsteps kind of as a someone who's been drinking, kind of what it sounds like. If you've ever been around that, kind of they're stumbling a little bit and they're getting over there. And he gets to the door and he yanks open the screen door and he hits up against the side there. I still remember some of these sounds, even though I don't tell it every time. And the banging on the door, I mean, you can see the thing rattling. And my brother and I are looking at each other. He's also a Seventh-day Adventist pastor now. We talk about this for once in a while. We're like, we we could take this guy, and we just we got a knife on us, we got our pepper sprayed a few other things. We were just thinking to ourselves, at that point we were getting brave again, thinking, Let's just fight it out, you know. But we realized once again it, it was beyond us. It was just like, What if would we really want to hurt our dad, you know? And so we kinda backed down. We were a little bit scared too of what it might be on the other side of the door, what he what he was like. And my grandfather steps out of all things. When the when the banging on the door stops, he undoes the chain, he has words with my grandmother, which is more likely, here's the signal, unlock the door. And he steps out of all things and on the other side of that really thin door. Can you trust somebody like that? I mean, if that isn't Jesus, I don't know what is. I mean, that's, that's a human being who is influenced by the mind of Christ to put themselves last to protect their family. And so he gets out there, to confronts the issue. I hear my dad's familiar pickup once again, the gravel crunch, and him drive off. And my grandfather does some kind of knock on the door. My grandmother undoes the chain and the lock. He comes in. He is as calm. I mean, I don't know. If, I have never really talked to him about it before he died. But he just seemed calm compared to what I, the way I felt. But there he was, willing to do that for me. It would echo in my mind until I recognized that was really the love of God in him. But isn't that what Jesus did for us? There he is. Not just being aloof and somehow helping we'll somehow get out of this mess ourselves, but he steps right in it. He becomes one with us and does not allow the devil to come at us without going through him. I think we can trust that. I think that shows eternal value beyond any human story, and that's why I believe it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. He's the one who has saved me. He's the one who still, even to this day, steps between me and what opposes him, what wants to harm me. So I'd like us to sing this song. And I don't know what it's like in your life, in your home, but if there's anything that's having you pause to say, Jesus, I really haven't struggled with this. I don't know if I can trust him with it. Whatever it is, he will prove trustworthy in that matter. It may not be as clear as day right now, but it will, as you look back, you will see what sweetness it was to trust in Jesus. So our song will be up on the screen. If you'd like to sing it sitting or standing, you can do whatever you like. If you want to come to the front and say something to him, kneeling down, you can say that to him then. But just say, Lord, it is sweet to trust in you. You value me. I trust in you.
1: It is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How i proved him o'er and o'er jesus jesus precious jesus oh for grace to trust him more oh how sweet to trust in jesus just to trust his cleansing blood just in simple faith to plunge me Neath the healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How i proved him more and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. To trust him more yes tis sweet to trust in jesus just from sin and self to cease just from jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace jesus jesus how i trust him How I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend and i know that thou art with me will be with me till the end jesus jesus how i trust him how i proved him o'er and o'er jesus jesus precious jesus Oh, for grace to trust you more.
0: If you'd like to kneel, feel free. Oh Lord, we we see that you laid down your very crown, your divinity at us, and you didn't even consider the cost if we would be saved. And so we're thankful for that eternal value that you placed on us. We're thankful that you've shown us that you are even willing to make yourself of no value, even of that of a sparrow or a fox, for each one of us. And you suffered for us, and you stood in between us and the devil, and you've also taken upon us your sin, our sin, excuse me, Onto yourself. So thank you for that sacrifice and that atonement. Thank you that we can trust you, because you love us, and we are of that much value to you. Guide us to remember that each day as we look in the mirror, and we, and we remember those words, eternal value. Help us to remember... There are others around us as well that need to hear that beautiful voice of Jesus. Guide us to share your words with those around us. Guide us to remember them each day, we pray in Jesus' name.